It's July 28th, 2022, and you're listening to the Architecture Geeks podcast. I'm Larry. And I'm Matthew. And we're your friendly neighborhood architects being geeky as we want to be. Well, thanks everyone for joining us for last week's episode. We really hope you enjoyed that. Mark was was definitely interesting, I, and I still to this day will tell you it's one of the one of the best present, presentations I have ever seen, um, and and a great way to to come back and and sort of start off our our second half of the year. Then I will say this much: I think the break. I know I know for me it was. I don't know about you, Matthew, but the break was was really appreciated. In between, in between, like all these disparate elements of, of that, that are going on in my life right now, you got, I mean, we obviously the twins and, and work and all this other stuff is like, okay, just some time to catch up, take a breather. You're like, okay, that's cool. That's cool. And, and then, and then, you know, you, we dive straight back into it for the last half of the year, but it was, it was, yes, I agree. It was definitely well needed. Yeah. I, 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 I will say I, I enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy the fact that it's, it's, uh, gruelingly hot outside and it's making job meetings just awful. <laughs> It'd be great if, if, if the projects were conditioned and like towards the end of, end of their work, but every project I have is currently under construction. So it's like standing in a hot box for, you know, an hour long meeting or, or I had one meeting that ran for almost a little over two hours and the house was like 95 degrees inside and none of the windows were open. So it has been, just absolutely rough. I mean, are, the, are you, I'm assuming you're still taking the twins out to get them kind of some of their energy out. Uh, yeah, but I mean, geez, it's been so difficult because it's been so hot lately that by 11 o'clock, they just like, we'll, we'll go outside before, before they go eat lunch and everything. But by 11 o'clock, they're like, all right, we're done. Let's, let's pack it up, go back to the car and, and, so you, we, we end up usually trying to find a pool somewhere. Like we have a couple of friends who have pools and then uh, my mother-in-law has uh, her neighborhood has a pool. So we try to end up at one of those either probably towards the end of the day. But man, if we don't, it's just we're stuck inside with two very energetic kids who have no regard for anything other than their own comfort and well-being. So. <laughs> well, I can totally, totally understand that. I'm like, James has been on a, on a couple of times said, what if we had a pool? I'm like, oh no, we don't need a pool. Please don't get us a pool. But, you know, but, but in this weather, it, it certainly would be nice. Well, so while we were off guys, there was, there was something that happened. It was sort of a big announcement and you'll, you'll pardon the pun. And it was intended because here we go. There was this architecture announcement Coming out of Fort Worth, which I always don't associate architecture with Fort Worth per se, or, or you know, the architecture really happens in Fort, <laughs> Fort Worth, although it does. But I, living in Dallas, I think I tend to get sort of blinders on for, for that sort of part. But anyway, so there was this announcement that came out. It was right at the end of the June, while right at the end of June, while we were off from the National Juneteenth Museum. That, and it was what it ended up being was these publication of renderings of the the Juneteenth Museum and the the announcement that big the Bjark Ingels group out of Copenhagen had created these renderings and and were, I guess this is the announcement that they were actually doing their project so there's these wonderful wonderful renderings that came out which unfortunately had the wrong skyline in the background it wasn't Fort Worth and everyone was kind enough to point that out 
But we thought we'd talk about that today because it hit Twitter and definitely caused some buzz because it's the Juneteenth Museum. And I don't know that I could pick a wider firm than perhaps Bjork Engel's group <laughs> out of Copenhagen. It just just uh, just seems a, an odd pairing. Yeah. So today's episode is about the representation of different communities in architecture, or maybe the lack thereof. And we're going to look at what international architectural representation looks like from a local perspective. And and then Larry's going to talk through us or talk, ugh, talk through us. Yeah, maybe not <laughs> is going to talk us through some, some tokenism because I, I personally am the worst person to be talking about that being the stereotypical white male architect. And then we'll end up you know, exploring alternatives on, on what we could do differently. Yeah. So, and, and in all fairness, to Matthew, I am I am just as white and cisgender male architect as he is. So, so it's going to be interesting, kind of kind of doing this and not hopefully not offending anybody in the process. But what we wanted to start with was talking about how do we get to a point where big is the design architect for this project? Because you you I think a lot of the question online was really how is it that a firm that's led by a forty seven year old white guy out of Copenhagen ended up being selected to design a museum that's really celebrating the end of slavery in the United States. I mean, how does that actually <laughs> happen? And for me, this, and, and living in Dallas, especially for me, this comes down to one of two things, either one, someone wanted to have a star architect attached to the project. And, and for some reason in Dallas, the art stoners here have just this big heart on for what I think of as name architects or what we all, all, always call star architects. And just in the arts district alone in Dallas, there are buildings done by Pay and Foster and Cool House and Piano. And even in Fort Worth, though, um, I, I didn't hadn't really paid attention to this, but it's also true that you know the, you've got buildings by Louis Kahn, which is the original Kimball. Um, Piano did the addition for that. Then there's Philip Johnson and Tato Andow. I mean, these so so apparently we aren't the only ones who really have this desire for names. And and I get from the perspective maybe of the organization itself maybe having a star architect attached to the project sort of gives it a level of notoriety and and given as many articles as I've seen announcing the museum and the release of the renderings the goal obviously if that's their goal that's been achieved because it's been everywhere it's you've seen I mean multiple articles in different different websites and you know you're, you're looking at a 70 million dollar facility which we all know is probably going to end up going up in cost and I suppose if you're raising that kind of money, the more potential donors who know about it, the better. So let's get a star architect attached to it that'll help push it out there. And suddenly we're not relying on local donors to provide us funding. We are looking at national and potentially international donors who can provide funding for this and we can do what we want to do. The second option here, there could very well be a philanthropist involved who's actually paying the bill for all, all the architecture fees and they're the ones making the decision. You know, that's, that's at least they're paying the fee for the star architect that's involved. And it's not something that would be that uncommon because it has happened here in Dallas. We wouldn't have the Calatrava bridges that are going across the Trinity if it wasn't for Margaret McDermott paying Santiago Calatrava's fee. She really liked his work. She really liked the design, the designs he's done in the past for other bridges. And so she was willing to foot that bill, which was great. I mean, we do need, you know, we definitely needed new bridges across the Trinity, but 
but they didn't necessarily have to be designed by Calatrava, but that was her desire and she was willing to willing to foot the bill. So there's entirely possible that there is a philanthropist in Fort Worth associated with museum who really likes the work that big has done and decided that's who they would want to have do the, do the design. And here we are, suddenly we've got a 47, seven year old white guy out of Copenhagen handling a project about slavery. And another thing too, we're, we're talking about the representation of a local community through the architectural and built process. My question here is how much does an international architect know or or really even understand what was done at a local level to the black community and uh, where this, this building is being placed. And, and, and the short version is in the 1960s, white urban planners dropped a major interstate highway right through this minority neighborhood, which, which the only function of which was to just further isolate the people who lived there from the larger urban community. And, and, and bonus, bonus effort right after they did the highway. Oh, there's also a train. Uh, there's also a bunch of train tracks that run parallel to that highway just to make sure it was that much more isolated. And to me, this was an opportunity to address the history of the site in Fort Worth. And looking at it, it kind of misses that mark entirely. You can, I mean, you can read all about how this section of the city is trying to be revitalized with the inclusion of this project, along along with some other investments in the surrounding neighborhood. But if you're going to spend $70 million on a piece of the city like this, why not try to heal some of those old existing wounds? Interstate 35, which is a massive highway, is still a big scar on the land in that neighborhood. Wouldn't it have been a a much more interesting project to see something that reintegrated, reintegrated two halves of the neighborhood that were destroyed by that highway? Clyde Warren Park was such a huge success for Dallas in reconnecting downtown Dallas with the neighborhoods to the north that that you know, maybe they try something similar. And, and, and I, I'm not suggesting a copy paste of that, but why not find some way to, for a massive project like this museum to fix or, or, or at least address and acknowledge the history of this site in such a way that it integrates itself into the neighborhood instead of just being another drive-by destination that looks good in renderings. Because that's, I mean, that's really what it has turned into. Oh, we get to ha- we have to go get in our cars, drive to this place, p- find somewhere to park, which you know may or may not exist, especially in a, a tighter urban environment, and then and then walk to that place. So, yeah, I, I think there's definitely an opportunity there that's been missed, and and it would be great to see that happen. I think a lot of the minority communities, the black communities in, in cities were really treated that way, that we needed a freeway and we didn't care. We didn't want to run it through the white part of the town. So let's run it through the, the black part of the town because the, they don't have the, the power to fight back necessarily. They don't have the wherewithal to push back on this. So, so we will simply blight your neighborhood by running this giant freeway through it. And, and you're right, there would be a great opportunity to sort of put this museum somewhere that could really, really maybe reestablish the neighborhood and, and really bring some vitality to it. But, you know, in fairness to the museum, I will say this, the, 
they were able to actually pick an architect of record who, you know, their local black-owned AAC firm. And for those of you who don't know, AAC, Architecture, Engineering, and Construction. But at the same time, I'm kind of hard-pressed to believe that there isn't a black-owned firm anywhere in the U.S., including the architect of record, that it really couldn't produce an equally amazing design. And, and all the talk within the American Institute of Architects about needing more black architects, one would think that the AIA would have some idea of who to contact, which, which again, makes you kind of wonder if that was even discussed or approached, or if it simply came down to, well, this is the architect we want, here's what we're going to use. And what's bothering me, I think, a little bit about this too, is that when the project's complete, no one's going to know who the architect of record is. It's never going to be talked about who the architect of record is. It's always going to be big because it's a big design project. And no one's going to hear time and again about the fact that the uh, architect of record will end up doing the bulk of the work to make the project viable. I mean, and I can re- remember from the first firm I worked for, they did the Booker T. Washington Performing Arts School, high school in, in Dallas. And the the they hired like typically and it's 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 the Dallas hard on they hired a firm out of the Northwest called Allied Works and I can remember one of the principals coming back from from a meeting in the Northwest and saying we were in this design meeting and looking at the drawings and I asked them where all the mechanical systems were going and they didn't know they hadn't thought about it. And so this, those sorts of things that the architect of record is really going to be involved in, and, and probably more so for this, this particular one, because they're handling the architecture and engineering. And so, I don't know, it just, it just bothers me that, that they couldn't find, they didn't feel like they could find someone, they couldn't find a black firm somewhere in the U.S. that could do this. And, and so here we are with this project. And who, who may actually have a better understanding of, what the community's experience has been and what's going on with that. But I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> well, and, and, and that brings us up to our second point, which is tokenism. I mean, from what I've read, it, it seems like big did manage to assign the project to the one black principal in their firm who currently leads the New York office. But really like that, that's where they went. Like it's, it's not hard to hear that and and just not feel that it smacks of, of tokenism. Oh, we need someone who can connect to the community. Let's get the one black guy in the office. And it, it's it's not it, and it's it's hard not to also think of that as Big's way of showing. Oh, look, we're diverse enough to contribute to the conversation. It it it, it brings up the question of should black architects be the only ones doing projects for the black community and and. And I get, the same could go for Asian, Hispanic, or, or queer architects. You know, does it smack of tokenism? Like, I, I, ideally, you want the best architect for the job, regardless of race, nationality, orientation, or regardless of the project. So do you only look in your own communities at the risk of missing talent that might show something new? On the one hand, it, it kind of reminds me of uh, of a study that that I, I read about a while back that was talking about prescription drugs and how the vast majority of prescription drugs back in the day were only tested on pre- predominantly tested on white males, and 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 so you go to the doctor and if you're female or if you're a, a different 
racial makeup other than white male, you know, maybe the drugs have a different interaction with you. And, and so, and, and, and then, you know, the doctors are left scratching their heads thinking, well, what, what, well, you know, if you had a different doctor or, or even like another example I could give is because different bodies react to drugs in different ways, you know, you, you're going to want like either a female doctor or, or, uh, uh, well, or a doctor of your same race. Yeah. Or a doctor of your same race who understands your body because he or she has the same lived experience or because they know the flaws of the system and, and can, can help you navigate them when you might not be represented. It, it just reminds me of the same thing. Like, so you're going to want a doctor who, who looks like you, who's had that same shared experience. Why not do the same for architecture? You know, I, I like the analogy of the 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 doctor, you know, doctor versus architect, because I think it's it's very true, and and wanting to have that that shared experience and wanting to feel like the people you're talking to understand you and understand what your needs really are. And I'm I, it's funny the the architecture has been making this big push about equity, diversity, and inclusion, and in talking about it and talking with people, it's there's this idea that What's happened over time is that architecture firms all look the same because we tend to hire the people that look like us. So firms for so long were white male architects that that's really what firm principals continue to hire because instead of looking equally at all candidates or thinking, well, we're dealing with a multitude of clients and various clients, we need people here who can understand that. They simply went back through and hired the people that looked like them because it's what made them comfortable. Now, in all fairness, I have had clients reach out to me because they wanted a gay architect because they were gay themselves and they felt that that would be a better fit. And there were things that I would understand that a straight architect might not understand. And, and I've heard similar things from other architects. But again, it, it you wonder, is that sort of the tokenism in and of itself you know, can a gay architect or should a gay architect be the only one to design for the queer community? Or are we looking at, you know, do we need to look outside of ourselves to, to find somebody who, who can bring a different viewpoint uh, to, to the project itself? You know, the Matthew, you asked me at one point, would, would I be okay? You know, if, if, if someone came to you and said, you know, who would you want designing for? Let's say that there was going to be a museum for the Stonewall Inn where the riots took place in 69. You know, who would you want to, to design that? And, and of course I came up blank because again, I feel like I'm the only queer architect, but does it require having a big name to, to do that? And, or does it require having a queer architect do that? Because someone in the community is going to feel left out. If you have a gay man designing this, well, what about the lesbians? What about bisexuals? What about the transgender community? What about the asexual community? What about non-binary people? Are you taking all of those considerations into it at the same time? Are you coming to it tainted? As a gay man, that's where your focus is, is more specifically on the, the G part of the LGBTQ. So yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's, this is sort of a, I won't say a slippery slope, but it, but it, but it brings that question. Do you, do you reach outside of your community to find the right fit? And I really keep, Going back to wondering if big really is the best fit for that project, because 
yeah, the, the, the renderings are really pretty, <laughs> even though the one that keeps getting published has the Austin skyline in the background. I don't know. They, they go there. They've done a pretty good job of changing it, but it seems to me like it, it would, it would, it would be really difficult for the people commissioning the project to just say, Oh, well, we just couldn't find anybody else. Or I didn't think anybody else was qualified for, even though they might not have been like that, that name brand firm. Was an opportunity missed here? I would, I would say, yeah. I mean, yeah, and and I think I think there there potentially is, but again, it, um, in my head, I'm I'm kind of coming back around to this idea that maybe the museum founders themselves maybe knew some of the limitations of of the community, knew, knew that that it was going to take someone with an outside perspective to really come in and see the whole picture and not not get caught up in their own bias towards the community or their, their own bias towards a particular aspect of the community because it, it happens. But yeah, yeah, you, you do, you have to wonder, did, did someone pay big fees? And so that's why they're here. Or did someone see something that they did? They thought that this would just be a good fit. It's, it's so hard. It's so hard to tell, but again, it, it hit Twitter and it was, it was the chat chatter for a little bit because you know, it's, it's, for for an industry in the U.S. that's not very diverse, to suddenly find that we have we have a white male led architecture firm designing the the Juneteenth Museum just seems very very um, opposite maybe of what it should be. But, but anyway, but that was, that was the big architecture news I think that really came out. And it came out right around Juneteenth, so perfectly fitting. But it was still still a little shocking. So if you guys want to want to share your thoughts on it, we'd be more than more than happy to hear them because like I said, we're we're a couple of white male architects, cisgender white male architects, and maybe we're not the best <laughs> best people to have the conversation with. But but let us know. You can as always reach me at Spotted Dog Arch on Instagram and Twitter or Larry at spotteddogarchitecture.com. And you can always find the podcast on Instagram at Archgeeks Podcast and on the internet at architecturegeeks.com. Perfect. And we hope everyone's staying relatively cool this summer. It has just been brutal. Um, hopefully next year we'll get a break, but I'm so ready for the fall and we hope you, <laughs> we suspect you are too. So hope everyone's doing well and we'll talk with you guys here in a couple of weeks. Bye. 